0: This morning we're uh, continuing our series in John's Gospel, so we're going to turn there right away. Uh, We've reached chapter 12. Lazarus has died. Lazarus has been resuscitated, and uh, Jesus now pretty much has a price on his head. Um, For a while, at the end of chapter 11, which is where we were last week, uh, in our very strange sort of uh, snow-driven service in the vineyard center, um, which we broadcast online, and Tim managed to preach to two and a half thousand people. Um, (laughs) um, Jesus had withdrawn with his disciples to an area of wilderness, um, but now we see him returning to Bethany, which is just a couple of miles down the road from Jerusalem. That means he's begun his movement towards people who have openly expressed a desire to kill him. So it's the movement towards his own death. Uh, We're going to pick up from the first verse of uh, chapter 12, uh, reading to verse uh, 11, I think. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You know that one. There he gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common person. He used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you but you do not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. So there are in this passage seven actors and I want us to spend a moment looking at each of them. Uh, in order to do this, I'm going to draw a little from some of the other Gospels uh, and the ways that they describe this same event. Um, there's something very special about this particular story, and I know that because of a couple of pieces of uh, biblical evidence. The first bit being in the way Matthew and Mark tell this story. Um, they they uh, describe Jesus as saying this about Mary. Wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her that 's in mark fourteen nine and almost uh, exactly the same in matthew twenty six thirteen and then the second bit of evidence is in John back a chapter at the beginning of chapter eleven, uh, John implies that this story was indeed known far and wide uh, he says. Um, when he's describing Mary, says, Mary's the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. So this isn't just an important story. It's somehow bound up as, as it's kind of bundled up with the important story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a story that goes alongside the, the gospel and with it. So as I said, we're going to look at the actions of the seven uh, actors or group of, groups of actors in this passage. Uh, the first being Lazarus. Uh, the second, the Jews, which, by which I think when, when John speaks about the Jews, he's making a geographical distinction rather than an ethnic one. Uh, I think he's referring to people who live in Judea as opposed to people who live in Galilee or in Samaria. Uh, but that is much contested, so uh, that's just my opinion. You're entitled to your wrong opinion. Um, uh, then there's the chief priests, uh, Martha, Mary, the disciples, and particularly Judas, and then there's Jesus. So we're just going to reflect a little bit on each of those. The first being Lazarus. I wonder if you've ever noticed that Lazarus doesn't actually have a speaking part. It strikes me that although the raising of Lazarus is obviously the main event in this part of John's Gospel. It isn't the main message. The message that John wants to convey has less to do with Lazarus and much more to do with how people, including us, respond to Jesus. To put this another way, the miracle's not the point. The point is that once the miracle has been done, there are then certain options available to us as to how we respond to Jesus. Some good options, some great options, some bad options, and some catastrophic options. And all of these are laid out for us in this passage. So Lazarus himself doesn't have a particularly crucial role to play. Certainly if you're an actor and your agent gives you a call and says, I've got you the role of Lazarus, you want to get a new agent. (laughs) Secondly, the Jews. Yeah, all you've got to do is come out of a tomb and look smelly. And robe. Anyway, secondly, there are the Jews. As I've said, I think this is a geographical uh, uh, designation rather than an ethnic one. Uh, but in any case, there's simply no sound reason for considering John's gospel an anti-Jewish gospel in the, say, in the way that it has so often been misrepresented. And here, indeed, in this passage, the Jews are presented in an entirely positive light. The miracle of Lazarus' resuscitation has caused many in that region to believe in Jesus. And because of the position of the chief priests, which I'll get to in a moment, a decision to ally with Jesus is at the same time a decision to reject the religious establishment. And that is a dangerous choice. But it's the right choice. And many Jews are making it. Then the chief priests. The chief priests are demonstrating in this passage, that although they have power over the religious establishment, that establishment has lost all of its spiritual vitality. It now exists, it seems, only to protect itself, rather than to move in step with what God is doing. They have been, just as everyone else has been, shown incontrovertible evidence of the power of God present in the person of Jesus. But their priorities are now so rooted, firmly rooted, outside of God's will that they seek now to destroy that evidence by means of murdering Lazarus. They don't just want to kill Jesus. They now want to to destroy the fruit of his work. I think this reaction is similar to uh, Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, when his heart is hardened. Even though he sees and recognizes the power of God at work, he still chooses to stand against him. And if, if we were to try and be more generous towards the chief priests, we would remind ourselves that uh, they believed that the death of a single man uh, sent by God would be the catalyst for the restoration of Israel. They may have believed, however perversely, that by hastening that death, they were doing God's will. Now, they were right about what God was going to do, but they were completely wrong about how he was going to do it and completely wrong about what faithful obedience to God looked like in that moment. Ultimately, what they wanted was for God to serve their vision rather than being prepared to surrender themselves to the path that God had set out. Next is Martha. Although in John's Gospel, Martha is only mentioned as being present and serving at this dinner, we already know that Jesus was close to this family. And in Luke's Gospel, there's a narration of another, or possibly even the same, occasion where Jesus is their guest. That's the one where uh, Martha is bustling about doing all the work around the house, and Mary sits at Jesus' feet, and Jesus says to Martha that what Mary has chosen to do is the right thing at the right time. I've heard it taught convincingly that Mary and Martha embody what Jesus says are the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love one another. They are absolute commandments, but they do actually have an order of priority, it seems. To love God is the number one priority, out of which a love of others will naturally flow. John says in one of his letters in uh, First uh, John 4:20. Those who say, I love God, and yet hate their brothers or sisters, are liars. So if you obey the first commandment to love God with all of your heart, then the second will be a natural fruit of that love. And so by serving her heart out to those around her, Martha is far from being disobedient to God, but what she's doing is missing out on a far better thing. She's gone for the good when she could have gone for the best. She could have taken the opportunity, like Mary, when it arises, to just simply enjoy the presence of Jesus. Now we come to Mary. I've been trying to work out just how much this perfume was worth in uh, today's terms. The value, we are told, is 300 denarii. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible that a single denarii is a reasonable day's wage for a laborer. So 300 denarii is roughly equivalent to an annual salary. 300 days work, 52 Sabbaths, and maybe a couple of holidays. So I've been trying to work it out on today's um, uh, national minimum wage, and I ch- I've picked the one for 18 to 20-year-olds because that's even cheaper than the, uh, the, the, the older age group, and I want to keep the cost of this perfume as low as possible. I want to keep expectations low. But on that basis, an an annual salary at national minimum wage, this one bottle of perfume is worth at least 11,000 pounds in today's money. Now, we don't know how wealthy Mary was, but that doesn't seem to be the point. The point is that however much it did or didn't hurt Mary's pocket, it was still a considerable amount of money that could have done an awful lot of good things other than being poured out upon Jesus' feet, which uh, a friend at home group this week called probably the most gnarliest feat ever to belong to a human being. <laughs> so why does Mary do this? Jesus says that she's uh, anointing him in preparation for burial, but I don't know whether she knows that that's what she's doing. I don't know whether she really has words to express uh, what she's doing. We don't know that. Uh, So I tried to put myself into Mary's shoes, do a bit of imaginative work to try and discover what she's thinking. So this is, disclaimer, uh, this is a work of my imagination, albeit done prayerfully. But I think she might have been feeling something along these lines. She's just suffered a massive, massive loss. Let's not forget that although Lazarus is now sat at the table dining with them, he did actually die. And she did actually lose her brother. And then Jesus came and gave her back what she had lost. And I think that because of that experience, she's now able to reconsider what is valuable in her life. And she's come to the conclusion that there's only one thing of ultimate value, and that's the person of Jesus. Since that's the case, she may as well pour out her most expensive possession at his feet. Because on the one hand, she knows there's nothing she can lose that if it's right that she should have it, that Jesus can't restore to her. And on the other hand, whatever possessions she does have are of no worth next to the incomparable riches of just being with Jesus. So I believe her actions said this, Jesus, here is something that the world considers precious but which I pour out for you because you are the only thing that is precious to me. Without you, it's all just stuff. I don't want it. I just want you. A sentiment beautifully expressed in the song lyric, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to your blood. Next, we come to the disciples. And I have brought up the disciples in general, as well as Judas in particular, because it's only John who actually singles Judas out. In Mark and Matthew, it's the disciples in general who are angry and complain that Mary's act is wasteful and ought to have been used ease the burden of the poor. So even though John makes it clear that Judas is completely riddled with poor motives, we shouldn't allow that to blind us to the fact that what what Judas actually says is a vocalization of the sentiment of the room. Everybody's thinking this. I've thought this. I've looked at my own role as a worship leader and wondered, what really is the point of me what is the point of us standing here and singing songs? How on earth does this help to feed the hungry or clothe the naked or give shelter to the refugee? I've wrestled with that question. I've had my own existential crises along the way. And this is the answer God gave back to me, that it's only through worship that communities may be truly healed and restored. the promise that God gave to Abraham that he would father a nation that would be a blessing to all other nations was founded upon a covenant relationship that put God first and foremost. And the blessing that would come to the world through that would be the overflow of that primary relationship where God was given the place of honor and glory and priority. So I hear, so even, even though, um, you know, I, we read this passage in Home Group this week, and as soon as Judas' name came up, it came with the soundtrack. Dun, dun, dun. You know, even though Judas is presented in this way to us, and we know what he's going to do, and we know he is, he's, he's wicked. I actually hear this concern in the same way as I see Martha's bustling, it is a good thing to serve others. It is a good thing to serve the poor. But it is the best thing that such service flows out of properly ordered priorities. Those priorities being the worship of God as the number one priority. And that's what Mary understands. Excuse me. and that's what the disciples fail to understand, whether their motives are honorable or not. And then last, but of course not least, there's Jesus. What does he have to say about Mary's actions? In uh, Mark 14, describing this same event, it says this, Jesus said, So first of all, Jesus defends Mary against all of the critics and says it's a beautiful thing that she does. Secondly, he points out that the poor are always going to be around us, and he seems to believe that there is no tension between extravagant worship on the one hand and our service to the poor on the other. And this phrase, that you will always have the poor with you, has been utterly misused and abused. As if to say that because poverty can never be completely wiped out, we shouldn't even concern ourselves with trying. Jesus is categorically not saying that. For a start, he's quoting Deuteronomy 15:11, which says this: "There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land." So that interpretation is just rubbish, basically. What Jesus is saying is what I've said a few times already this morning. We are absolutely to serve the poor, but there's a proper context for that, and that is indeed the proper context for everything. And that is out of restored and redeemed communities who put the worship of God as their absolute number one priority. In the vineyard, we often talk about the, the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And that's relevant here because although the kingdom of God did come with Jesus and is here, will continue to have poverty around us until that kingdom is fully and permanently established. Something that has not yet happened, but most certainly will happen. We experience um, moments where uh, the power of God comes and the kingdom of God is, is tangibly present but there are also other kingdoms at work in opposition to God's kingdom. The counsel of scripture is that we open wide our hands to those in need in our land, but that we don't see that as part of some vain utopian project that can never exist this side of Jesus' return. Instead, we see it as the overflow of our worship. That's why when we take up our offering here to give our finances to the work of the church, we see it as an extension of our worship. We see it as a consummation of the words that we sing. We give completely to God so that we may give completely to others. It's not some for God, some for others. It's all for God so that we can give ourselves completely to others. In service, we sacrifice all we have to the only one who can properly and truly restore and redeem all of humanity. So there is no tension between extravagant sacrificial worship and our service of the poor. So those are the seven actors. There is actually an eighth character. In this narrative, although this character has no autonomy, decide anything for itself. That is, of course, Nard. <laughs> and this seems like the perfect opportunity for me to unleash my new advertising campaign. just offer that up as a little bit of light relief in what has thus far been an incredibly heavy sermon and is is about to get incredibly heavier. Because I want us to get to the heart of the matter. What is our appropriate response to what I've said? What does this all mean for us today? I believe God's calling us all as individuals to make a commitment to him this morning. But rather than telling you exactly what that looks like for you personally, because it will look differently for each one here, I want to give you a sense of what it might mean for us as a church family doing the mission of God uh, that you do indeed make a commitment to Jesus this morning. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Jim talked about how as a church we want to do and experience more of the same. If you weren't here and you didn't hear that talk, I absolutely insist you go to our website, you subscribe to our podcast, you listen to it, take notes. What do, what do we call it? A... Jim Manifesto or something like that. Yeah. But it is a blueprint for, uh, for, for, uh, against which we will test the, uh, the ongoing activities of our church. And in saying more of the same, Jim made it clear that this was not a request for more from you. This was an invitation to the more that God has for us. He said this, to those of you who already give sacrificially of your time and of your resources, we thank you. This is not a call to fill your diaries with more activities or drain your bank account of more money, but we do believe God wants to do so much more through us and in us. So it's an invitation to more, not a request for more. That said, I believe that God will increase our capacity to do and to give more supernaturally. Jim had four focal points for the more that God has for us more time spent in prayer, more openness, invitation, and access to people who are outside our gathered community, more capacity with which to do the work of the kingdom, and more pouring out of and into one another's lives. And I want to raise these points once again as things we should be contemplating, but today I think our response is particularly connected with two of them and with two particular fears that will bind us up and make it impossible for us to do or see more. The first point is our desire to see more people outside come to know and love Jesus and to join our family. And the fear that will prevent this is the fear, simply, of people. To be more open and inviting to those that we know around us who don't know Jesus yet, it's going to involve some pretty awkward conversations. But let's consider for a moment what it meant for Mary to do what she did. She risked ridicule, even from those closest to Jesus. They just didn't understand her. What, uh, they didn't know what drove her to such a reckless act of adoration. We don't know anything about how Mary then dealt with the inevitable scorn that others poured upon her. We don't know if she'd done the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course and had, had resources with which to, to process <laughs> all of that without it wounding her too deeply. We don't even know if she knew what she was doing. She just wanted to... Show Jesus that she loved him. But I think we should be able to at least say this. She knew what it was going to cost, both in the value of the perfume that she was pouring out and in terms of her standing with other people. So for us to follow her example might look, look like us putting ourselves in those embarrassing and awkward positions with people who we know, people who we work with, who simply won't understand. But it's worth it. And I say this not to condemn you when you've maybe bottled out of situations where you knew you had an opportunity to reveal just how important Jesus is to you with someone who probably wouldn't understand. But do you remember when Peter denied even knowing Jesus? Those were opportunities for Peter that involved a choice, either to consider himself better off um, uh, associating with Jesus and then paying the inevitably painful cost of that association, or, as he chose in that moment, to succumb to the fear that always creeps in and to believe that the cost was not worth it. Again, I say this not to condemn you because we need to remember that When Jesus then speaks to Peter after that, he's so gentle and so forgiving and so kind, just as he is with us. But we mustn't forget that it was still the wrong thing for Peter to have done. And we must determine not to make the same mistake. Demonstrating that we love Jesus in a world that doesn't is going to hurt But a cost-benefit analysis that takes into account our our own wholeness as human beings and the potential wholeness into which we're inviting people, it leaves no room for doubt that it's worth it. So that's it, the fear of people. We need to decide that we love Jesus so much that we're prepared to put our potential embarrassment and, and potential loss... On the line. My second point is about our desire for more capacity, to have more resources and more flexibility with which to do the work of the kingdom. The fear that I think will cripple our move into more capacity is a fear of poverty. We fear that if we, like Mary, take our precious resources, all the things that we have, and pour them out at the feet of Jesus, we won't have anything left to live on. And as a response to that fear, let me offer you another P, on top of these four P's. Pruning. Often a plant will naturally grow branches that are unfruitful, but that continue to sap energy from the roots. Those branches need to be cut off so that the energy that comes from the roots can go towards much more fruitful branches. And when we do this, it doesn't mean that there's any more energy than there was to begin with. It just means that whatever energy there was, is now flowing towards the production of healthy fruit. So what we need to ask ourselves is this. What does God want to prune from your life? It's not gonna be a loss, it's gonna be a gain. What does he want you to loosen your grip on? Something that you've come to think of as absolutely essential absolutely necessary when actually God wants you to know that he is all you need. We sang in a song earlier that those words from Job, that you give and take away. It is God's to give. It is God's to take away. But we will choose to say, blessed be your name. I had a a picture at a prayer meeting we had on Wednesday and it was a two-stage picture of us all entering into this room uh, together to worship God and uh, it was two stages because I saw it twice the first time uh, it was like all of us had on our chest these um, dials like on a car dashboard and we were all the fuel tank showed us all it was two-thirds full and we were coming in and asking God us God to, to fill us up with that extra third and we were going out full great I then had a second vision almost exactly the same, where we all walked in, we all had two-thirds on our dials, but what we did is we emptied ourselves out and sent, us, sent our dials swinging to zero. And then what did God do as we worshipped? He filled us up completely. By my very, very poor maths, the net result of that second vision is about 166% of what we came in with. And I think the, the response that I think God is calling us to in that is if we would just surrender everything to him, then he will not only fill us up, but as a church, he will give us more than we came in with. He will multiply it. He will make us more fruitful. I believe that we need to choose this morning to say to God that everything I have that I call my own, I give to you. And I will only leave with what you give me back. I believe that he'll not only give us back everything that we need, but that he'll also increase our capacity for more but we need to be prepared to leave with nothing but the presence of God. So let's stand, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you forward uh, for a a couple of specific things, but I'm also going to invite you forward for whatever it is that you feel God prompting you to come and pray for. We're just going to spend a moment just... um, Invite the Holy Spirit to come. Just listen to what he has to say. Just, I, I want him to just uh, do away with any words that I've said that are of no value and to pinpoint the words that he wants to say to you this morning to which you need to respond. So let's just wait for a minute. Come, Holy Spirit.